or open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 this morning. Here John writes in 1 John 5, 18, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. May the Lord bless our reading from his word and let us pray. Father, we ask you to bless us now as we look together at this close of John's letter. We thank you, Lord, for this precious epistle, for all that we have learned from it. And we pray, Lord, that you would now teach us to the last. We look to you, Lord, for our spiritual feeding and strengthening and encouraging correction. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that I want to address is knowledge itself. And first of all, speak to its nature. This whole epistle of 1 John is about knowledge, about the things that Christians know. That is, the things that Christians perceive and that they have an understanding of by experience. And it's the kind of knowledge that produces emotion, particularly affection. That's what William Webster says in his work on Greek synonyms and syntax. He goes on to say, to know the Lord in the language of Scripture is to believe in him, to fear, to love, to obey. All those things wrapped up in that idea of of knowing the Lord. As the word is often used by John, it implies a, a personal acquaintance with some doctrinal truth. A perception and understanding of it that goes beyond merely memorizing that doctrine or being able to state what the doctrine is or being familiar with the points of it. It's one thing to be able to outline the gospel, for example, because you're familiar with uh, the various points of it. And it's something else to know and believe it because it's the means of your salvation from sin and your hope in conquering death and all the grounds of all your expectations concerning eternal life. Those of you who witnessed it, could you see the difference in Mercy Montgomery last week in Sunday school from when she reported on what she intended to do and when she went to Brazil and when she reported on what she actually did on the trip. Did you detect the difference in her presentation? I think it was very obvious, wasn't it? The post-trip report was far more animated, far more engaged, and it was clear that she obviously loved the experience. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. There's there's nothing wrong with her pre-trip 
report, and if you're watching this, mercy. There was nothing wrong with that. It was exactly what one would expect. And the post-trip report was also exactly what one might expect under the circumstances. But the presentations were very different. And that illustrates the difference between her being aware of the facts concerning her expected experience and her being aware of those facts by having experienced the events, the events described by those facts. And in that sense, it illustrates the idea of what John means when he writes to you who believe and he says, you, or sometimes he says we, know. We know. He means that you don't just know the facts of the Christian experience, but you are aware of the experience of those facts as a Christian. Let me repeat that. It means that you don't just know the facts of the Christian experience, but that you are aware of the experience of those facts as a Christian. Take a simple uh, factual statement that you find in the scriptures, like Romans 10, 17. It's a well-known verse among many Christians. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Everyone who reads those words is aware, in a sense, of what they say. But the believer has experienced these things. The word of Christ is heard by you, and it produces, by the grace of God, faith in you. To the believer, this isn't just a mere proposition or a statement of theory. It's an experienced fact. This is your story. You heard the word of God, and it produced faith in you. And you actually came and experienced the thing that's stated here. So that's what John is talking about when he's talking about us knowing things throughout this epistle. Not just that we know the facts, but that we've experienced those facts in our hearts, in our lives, in our souls. So now, when we come to the end here of the epistle, he says there are three things that you know. Not just you know the facts of, but you have the experience of those facts. You know them because you've experienced them. The first one is in verse 18. He says, we know. We have the experience that helps us to understand that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Let's talk about sinning, first of all. We're aware, and we know, says John, that the child of God does not go on sinning, doesn't continue on sinning. This is a statement that has to be understood in the full context of all that John has said. If you don't look at it that way, then you can't understand what he's saying. And it's when it's lifted out of that context, the context of this epistle, that it produces concerns and unsettles people. Leads some people to look for perfection 
as the evidence of their faith leads others to believe that there is such a thing as perfection. Now we know that John is not speaking of that here, not speaking of perfection. We know it because of the whole testimony of his epistle. We know that the child of God, once saved, sins again. If we, if John were to mean that by this that that child of God never sins again after they're saved, then everything that we looked at last week in the preceding verses wouldn't make any sense, would they? Remember last week we talked about the necessity of praying for each other when we see a brother or a sister stumble into sin. Well, if he means here, but your brothers and sisters will never do that, then what's the point of all that he says about praying for them? Why should we? No, it's obvious that he's saying something different here than that we never sin. John, as Calvin says, if this is what he's saying here, that we never, that the Christian never sins, he would be inconsistent with himself. John would be inconsistent with himself. What he is referring to here is the habitual, thoughtless, willful exercise of sin practiced by those who have not been born again. Now, all this word's important to the description of it. It is habitual. It, it just happens all the time. It's thoughtless. There's no thought, oh, am I sinning? Or, oh, am I offending God? Or have I done something wrong here? There's no thought of that. And it is willful. This is what I want to do. I'm not like Paul who says the things that I want to do, I don't do. And things that I do do, I don't want to do. And that's not this person. This person is the one who says, no, I, I want to sin. I want to do these things. And that belongs to the heart of the person who has not been born again. The child begotten by God wrestles with temptation. He or she resists sin. And when he or she falls or stumbles, he or she is repentant, looking for mercy, looking for that forgiveness that's promised through the Lord Jesus Christ, that forgiveness that is promised through the Lord Jesus Christ. John wrote earlier, saying this. This is in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So again, he's not inconsistent with himself here. He's saying, I'm writing so that you won't fall into sin. I'm writing to warn you. I'm, I'm warning, writing to guide you. But if you do fall into sin, we have an advocate, and that is Jesus Christ. The believer knows what it is to struggle against temptation. They know what it is to resist sin. And they know what it is to stumble and fall prey to offenses as well. And they know what it is to be brought under conviction and brought to repentance and to find forgiveness in Christ. Sometimes when one stumbles into sin, it's a long process to be brought to conviction. It doesn't happen necessarily right away. It takes time. But it comes. And you can think of King David as the example there. 
At other times, conviction and repentance come quickly. The sin, sinful statement is barely out of our mouths before we're convicted of the sin of it and we realize, that, oh no, I've offended God and this person and, and we're determined to make it right. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's prolonged. Putting on the whole armor of God with prayer, he or she, the believer, is wary of Satan's devices. They're watchful. They resist and they flee. And at the same time, he or she keeps God's commandments in mind and in view and in heart and is ruled by them in the conscience. And doesn't find them burdensome, as John says, but finds them a blessing. Now John ends this point by saying that the evil one doesn't attach himself to the one who was born of God. Because the one who was, was born of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, protects him or her. Now, when you think about John saying that, he's saying, what is the context of this? Where, where is this coming from in his mind? It may have been from the very words of Jesus that he himself recorded in the Gospel of John, excuse me, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, in verses 12 and 15. Jesus says there, during his, what we call his high priestly prayer, he says this, to the Father, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus there is saying, I have kept them. And then in verse 15, he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And I think John probably has those words in mind when he writes this here and says that we don't keep on sinning. We are protected from the evil one. He doesn't have an attachment to us like he does to those who are without faith and who are without Christ. You also have the experience of Peter here. In verse 22, or Luke chapter 22, excuse me, in verse 31 and 32, Jesus is speaking and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I've prayed for you. I've interceded for you so that he can, can't get that attachment on you that will cause you to utterly fail. Will Peter still deny Christ? Yes, he will. But he won't fatally fall because Satan cannot get that attachment to him because Christ has made Peter his own and is protecting him. Calvin says this, when he says that he is not touched by that wicked one, reference is made to a deadly wound. For the children of God do not remain untouched by the assaults of Satan, but they ward off his strokes by the shield of faith, so that they do not penetrate into the heart. They're not fatal in their character. Now, Admittedly, there's a possibility grammatically that he was saying that the believer protects him or herself by his or her faith. 
But ultimately, even in that situation, it's the Savior who keeps Satan from getting a fatal grip on the Christian. And I don't think it matters either way. In Hebrews chapter 2, in verses 14 through 15, we read, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We escape the lifelong slavery because of what Christ did for us. And the argument here is much like the one we saw in Sunday school, with a single word and the tense having an impact on what's said. He refers to us as those who are begotten of God. He refers to Christ as the one who was begotten of God. And so that seems to make it clear that the protection he's talking about comes to us from the one who was begotten by God. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hendrickson says, Satan desires to lead us into sin and to control us permanently. But we who are children of God belong not to Satan, but to God. Now in verse 19, he says this. Another thing we know. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You know you are from God. It's the second thing that he says here. And he's stating that we have this experimental knowledge that as believers, we are what we are from God. It has come to us from God, from the hand of God, by the grace of God. We have our new life and everything that that new life entails because we are begotten of him. In the first two verses of this fifth chapter, John wrote this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. You see how he says it there in the beginning, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We know that we are from God. Now, with us, we find ourselves protected from who and what we are by this relationship that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ because we are from God. And I think in this, John is making one more attempt to make a distinction here. He appears to be offering one more attempt to make things absolutely clear. You're either born again and hate sin and resist the evil one, keeping the Lord's commandments and finding them a blessing, or you're in the clutches of the devil, sinning without fear, without conscience, or falling prey to him. And you know, he says, if you are from God or not. One or other is your experience. You're aware and you know which it is. If you believe and know that is your experience to spurn the word of God and are living a life of unrepentant sinfulness, then the name of Jesus Christ 
I would call you to pray for mercy and seek to be born of God, to be from God, to know that you are from God. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 20 through 21, we read, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, in this call for knowing that we're in God and that we come from God and know, and not continuing in sin, there's an admonition to every Christian. The enemy fills the world and is at the heart of all worldliness. We're not wise or strong enough to contend with him unarmed and alone. The believer's experience makes him or her very much aware that all spiritual life, all spiritual vitality and security comes from God and that it is both foolish and dangerous to be the friend of the world. As James writes, James says in James 4, 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And John himself said earlier in this epistle, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In order to be well prepared for the contest, this wrestling with sin, these two things must be borne in mind. That the world is wicked and that our calling is from God and that we are from him and not of the world. And then comes the third thing. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And here we have a closing reminder in this epistle that the confidence we have concerning our faith rests in the fact, beloved, that Jesus has come and given us understanding. It's really important to focus on that. The confidence that we have comes from the fact that Jesus has come and given us understanding. Assurance is a stumbling block and a struggle for some believers. And most Christians have moments of doubt, or uncertainty concerning their faith. The temptation when those doubts and fears come is to look upon ourselves, to look within ourselves, and to judge the sincerity and the intensity of our faith. Am I really believing? Do I really have this faith? Do I, do I really possess Christ? 
Now, there's a sense in which we need to do that. The scripture calls on us to do that. Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 5 through 10, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with goodness and godliness, excuse me, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail or fall. So practice them. Look for these things in yourself. But there are some other considerations, beloved, to keep in mind as you make these assessments. Not just looking inwardly, but remembering certain things and remembering the importance of the promise of God. I'm just going to touch on three here as we we wrap up. First of all, the state of humankind naturally. In Romans 3... Verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That last phrase, it's really important. No one seeks for God. Any desire you may have to know God, to be delivered from sin, to come to Christ, to trust him as your Savior, is the gift of God in you, beloved. By nature, no one seeks God. If you have that desire in your heart, that desire is coming to you from the Lord. Some might say, well, wait, many people seek after some sort of God or something to worship. So it's natural for for men and women to, to want to know God. And the answer to that objection is yes, men and women are superstitious. You're right. They seek a God that they can manipulate um, they, they seek a God, uh, even in themselves, they look for divinity. But that's a far cry from what is described here, beloved. It's a far cry from having an interest in the one true and living God and being concerned with having spurned him and spurned his sacred law. To have some superstitious attachment to an idol or... Uh, to some shaman or to some philosophy is far different from having a sense of conviction under the law of the one true righteous living God. Much different. And his law. Far different than seeking to be reconciled not by your works but by his work through Christ. A far cry from trying to coerce a God into complacency by incantations and and noble efforts and resting in the blood of the Lamb. The sacrifice of his own son at Calvary. You have an interest in those things, an interest in pleasing that God, the God of the Bible, the one true and living God. That is a gift from God because no man seeks God in and of himself. 
If anyone is concerned about his or her place before the one true and living God, if you're concerned with sin and you're looking to Christ and resting in him, even though you may be weak and frail and find in yourself much stumbling and much failure, (coughs) you should take that as the mercy of God working in you, despite that weakness. In John 6, verses 44 through 45, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. It's the gift of God. Secondly, the best Christian sins. It's not sinlessness, beloved, that's the proof of your faith but repentance and trust in the promise of Christ for forgiveness. In James 3, 2, James says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. And look at what John says here. God has given you who believe this understanding so that you may know him who is true, And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It's by your understanding, beloved, regarding Jesus Christ, that you're saved. You're knowing him, not just about him, but knowing him. And I think this is beautifully put in a familiar hymn, which I think suffers sometimes from our understanding simply because it is easy and familiar, particularly the tune. We kind of like the tune. And so because we like singing the tune, we sometimes don't pay attention to the specifics of the words. It's blessed assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Now just think about that for a moment. If you're an heir, somehow you're an heir, what'd you do to get that? You didn't do it, right? (laughs) You just got born. And you're in the line. You're an heir because the person has put you in that position to be an heir. Purchase of God. That's why we're heirs. We are the purchase of God. Not earning salvation purchased from God, but heirs of salvation purchased by God or of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Not claiming his spirit, washing myself, but being washed, being born of the spirit. Again, you might have you know, made a little effort to get born, but most of it had to do with other things. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior are happy and blessed. Did I say that right? No, I didn't, did I? It's in my Savior I'm happy and blessed. It's not he and me together. It's me and him. That's where my blessing, my happiness comes from. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, 
lost in his love. Not filled with my goodness, filled with his goodness. And he's not blessed by my love. I'm blessed by his love. And the last thing is that it is his promise to you that gives assurance and not yours to him. Remember the words of Peter? Boy, they were bold, weren't they? Peter said in Matthew 26, 33, though they all fail, referring to all his fellow disciples, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. What a pledge. What a promise. He went on to say, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. When all the other disciples heard him say that, they said, yeah, me too, me too. I I want to be in that promise too. What a bold pledge and promise. Boy, if that's what counts, right? Your promise and and your your intentions and your sincerity and your dedication, if that's what counts, this is the perfect example, isn't it? How'd this work out for Peter? Didn't work out at all, did it? What good were those intentions? What good were those promises? What good were those assurances? I don't think any of us here would doubt the sincerity of them at the moment. Do you think when Peter said this and you were sitting at the table, you would have raised your hand and said, wait, 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 Peter, you don't mean that. You think you would have said that? I doubt it very sincerely. You would have been like the other disciples saying, yeah, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I say that? That's it. Boy, that's what we need to hear on this occasion is this kind of pledge and promise of sincerity and faithfulness and we're going to do this. That would have been our reaction. Yet they were fatally flawed, these promises, weren't they? If you're looking for the day when you can say what Peter said to be sure that you're Christ's, Consider what it led to in his case. Now we come here to this table where Jesus says to you, I will never fail, I will never let you fall away. Because I will keep you as my purchased possession, bought with my blood. I died for you, I will not deny you. I will hold you, I will keep you. Not because you say you won't, because he says he won't let it happen to you. Because you are his. Believe God, who has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. In Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus talks about those who are his and never losing them. Now the final division of the verse is awkward. If one puts the last statement of verse 20 with verse 21, I think it takes away the impression that John's last words in this epistle are, oh, wait a minute, I almost forgot, keep away from idols too. I forgot to mention that, but I'm going to stick it here on the end. If you follow the verse separations here the way they are, you might be led to think that, but that's not the case. 
Think of it rather like this. And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. Therefore, little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from putting your trust, your confidence in anything else but Jesus Christ. God's the one who has given you this understanding of who he is. God is the one who has given you this faith to put your trust and confidence in him. Keep yourself from anything else that would lead you away from resting wholly in him. Candley says, it is our realization of him in that character is the true God and eternal life, which constitutes our best and only security against idolatry. The idolatry which John exhorts us in his closing admonition to shun. Worship, beloved, nothing in the place of Jesus Christ. Not your sins, not your works, not your pledges, not your promises, not your doubts, and not the world. Worship Christ and him alone. In Revelation 5, this same John says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worship him and keep yourself from all other idols. Father, we pray that you will bless these admonitions to our hearts. Lord, everyone here knows if he or she knows these things that John is referring to. May all who do rejoice and give thanks and worship the Savior this morning from the heart. If there are any who know that they don't know these things, then Lord, press upon their hearts the fact that they must know them for the peace of their souls and for the peace of their conscience that their confidence must be in Christ and in him and his work and not in themselves. Lord, let them abandon their own works, their own hopes, and put their hope and trust in the Redeemer alone. And may we all rejoice together at the Lamb's table, giving thanks for the assurance that we have, for the knowledge that we have from God, that we are yours because Christ has made us his. These things we ask for and plead for in Jesus' name. Amen.